Welcome to The Mind Renewed. They're so worried that they've got to take over down here the direction of where it's going and get a one world system together, get rid of nationalities, and get one government, one religion, so we won't have war. That's the effort of man to bring about his own salvation. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Dorsetshire countryside here in the UK. And yes, you did hear right, I'm not in Lancashire this week. I am in fact speaking to you from the home of my parents, who've been staying with us this last week. And thereby hangs a tale, because once again, it's half term for the schools in my corner of the world, and I've been pretty much occupied with family for the whole week, so I haven't been able to spend very much time on the podcast. But as I said last half term, rather than simply put the podcast completely to sleep for the week, I'm going to take the opportunity to share with you something that I found particularly interesting and thought-provoking. And this time, it's a couple of interviews by two world-renowned academics, one a philosopher-turned-theologian, Keith Ward, and the other a theologically-motivated analytical philosopher, Alvin Plantinger. But before we get into any of that, I'd just like to say a word of thanks to all of you who've sent me emails over the last few weeks with words of encouragement for what I'm doing here at The Mind Renewed. I really do appreciate that. As I've said before, without that feedback, it silenced this end. So it really is good to hear from people. And thanks also to those who've made suggestions as to subjects and guests that might be worth considering for future podcasts. I'm not, of course, able to follow up on every single suggestion, but it's certainly useful to get a picture of what's on people's minds so that I can at least keep that in view when planning future podcasts. So thanks very much to all of you who've done that. And while I'm on the subject of emails, there is one other thing that I'd like to mention. Sometimes people have let me know if they found a particular podcast interesting, and that's great to know, of course, but it's very rare for anybody to tell me exactly why they found a particular podcast interesting. And that would be especially interesting to know, because then I could get a better idea of how my questioning and research can be sensitive to the kinds of concerns people actually have. So any feedback of that nature would be very welcome indeed. So that's all I wanted to say about that. Let's get on with the substance of the podcast itself. Podcast number 27, two classic interviews on God, atheism, science and belief. Now these two interviews came to my attention about three years ago when I was trying to find audio by the recently deceased New Testament historian Martin Hengel. And I came across an excellent interview conducted by Dr. John Dixon of the Centre for Public Christianity, based in Australia, or CPX as it's also known. Now, I actually wanted to include that Martin Hengel interview in this podcast, because so far as I'm aware, there's nothing else of him out there on the net, and it's a fascinating interview in many ways. But unfortunately, I think due to his age, and the fact that his English isn't especially fluent, I didn't think that that would actually work very well in the podcast, so I did decide against that. But the interview is embedded in the video resources pages, so if any of you are interested in New Testament studies and particularly want to hear a giant of a scholar respond to some of the popular accusations against the New Testament Gospels, then I do very much recommend that you take a look at that interview. But to return to what I was saying, while I was looking for that, I came across these other two interviews, which I thought were themselves very interesting in a number of ways. 
And they're both essentially responses to the so-called new atheists, in particular Richard Dawkins and his book The God Delusion. But they're not just that. There are also many other questions that are brought up in those interviews as well, such as, and just for example, does science ultimately point towards the existence of God? Is naturalistic philosophy irrational? Does evolution necessarily conflict with belief in God? Is it rational to believe in God without arguments for God's existence? Is the idea of the multiverse as good an explanation of reality as God? And lots of other interesting things as well. And the first interview is with the UK theologian Keith Ward, who was Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford University, he's now retired, who is interviewed by Dr John Dixon of CPX. And although I don't agree with Keith Ward on a number of theological matters, I nevertheless do think that he has many, many excellent things to say in this particular interview. And the second interview is with the US philosopher Alvin Plantinga, who is John A. O'Brien Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, who is interviewed by Simon Smart, also of CPX. And just before we plunge into these, I do need to say one thing. As you listen, you might think that I've presented these in a rather strange way, because the interviews are split up into segments with music in between. And the reason for that is that although the Centre for Public Christianity has very kindly given me permission to use their materials... In order to comply with the terms of their license, I have had to preserve the interviews in their original form, which means that I do have to leave in the slightly cheesy music between the segments. So I do apologise for that, but it depends on your perspective. I mean, in, in the right mood, I might even think that has a charm of its own. Anyway, you decide. So without further ado, I hand over to Dr. John Dixon to introduce the first interview with Keith Ward. Hi, John Dixon here from the Centre for Public Christianity. Professor Keith Ward is a world-renowned philosopher and theologian who's written numerous books and given many high-profile public lectures on religion, science, God and the place of belief in the modern world. He's held positions teaching both philosophy and theology at Glasgow, London and Cambridge universities before being summoned by the Queen to take up the position of Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford University. He's a fellow of the British Academy and is on the council of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. Keith Ward is now retired, but he continues to write books and lecture. And I had the privilege of catching up with him in his home in the village of Cumna, just outside of Oxford. I began by asking him whether the new atheists are right when they say that theology isn't even an academic discipline. Well, uh, I have been a professional philosopher all my life. I began teaching philosophy in universities. Uh, philosophy courses, things like Aristotle, Plato, Kant, Hegel, and these days it's involved a lot with science. Um, well, all I want to say about that is I became a professor of philosophy, so uh, I think that was an academic discipline, and I found that theology was an even more rigorous academic discipline than philosophy was. It, it does a wider set of things. It looks at ancient languages, Hebrew ancient Greek, etc. It looks at the historical data of the growth of the church and of religions in general. It involves a whole lot of uh, very difficult academic work. I mean, obviously, I'm not an expert at all of that. Uh, it also involves philosophy because you have to ask questions. Is it reasonable uh, to believe in God? What are the grounds for belief? And then it involves historical questions. In fact, um, I found as a subject, it's a much more interesting subject, I have to say, than philosophy, because it, it involves a wider range of disciplines, literature, 
history, languages, textual studies, and philosophy. So I think theology is actually uh, one of the best uh, academic disciplines among the humanities. Am I right in thinking uh, you started out teaching philosophy at Glasgow, and in those days you were more influenced by atheist writers than Christian theologians? I think that's true. Uh, that was the uh, 19, early 1960s, and I think uh, a lot of influential philosophers then were atheists. Not all of them, but people like Freddie, uh, Gilbert Ryle, they taught me. And uh, atheism was the fashionable thing to think, uh, and people thought, oh, the arguments for God don't work, uh, etc. Um, it wasn't as vitriolic as <laughs> the new atheists are today. It was just rather dismissive. So. Yes, I fell for the party line, and uh, for me, atheism was unthinking, unquestioning faith. Uh, of course, there's a new wave of atheist confidence and publishing. Uh, where has it come from, do you think? Um, not speaking about individuals, but, but as a movement, what inspires it? I think the hidden agenda is anti-Islam uh, after 9-11, uh, and that they uh, don't want to get shot, and so they attack religion as such. Uh, I think that accounts for the vitriol. Um, otherwise, the vitriol is very hard to account for. Um, I mean, the claims that they make, like religion is responsible for most of the violence in the world, those claims are simply historically false, and every historian knows they're false. Uh, and, but they're latching onto a particular um, phase in world politics without exploring the real reasons, uh, you know, why Islamicists feel anti-Western. I mean, goodness, um, I feel anti-Western sometimes when you, when you look at the policies we're asked to support. So, uh, so they're mixing up politics and religion, I think, and, and using it as an attack uh, on certain forms of religion. One of the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, feels that he stumbled across an almost knockdown argument against God, which basically runs that any God capable of creating such a complex universe must be infinitely more complex, therefore saying there's a God explains absolutely nothing. How compelling do you find what he regards as uh, a new, fresh, knockdown argument? Yeah, the argument comes from David Hume. Uh, it's an 18th century argument, quite well known to all philosophers, uh, and has been refuted many times uh, in this sense, that of course, uh, two main things to say about it. One is uh, he holds as a sort of uh, dogma that, uh, that the more complex a thing is, the more improbable it is. So God, if, it's, if God is complex, God is very improbable. Uh, that's false. Uh, you can't use probability I don't want to get too technical about this, but assessing probabilities depends on some background against which you can assess them. If you throw a die and a six side, so there's a one in six chance that uh, one side will come up. That's probability. But if you don't know how many sides there are, and you don't even know if it's a die, you don't know whether there is a die or not, you can't assess probability. So you just can't use probability in a vacuum. So when he says the complex is more improbable uh, than the simple. He's wrong. I mean, you just can't compare them, so you don't know. So that's the first point, right? It's not true that God is more improbable than the universe, even if God is very complex. Secondly, however, he simply doesn't read theology. Not surprising, he doesn't believe it exists, um, but that means he doesn't see what believers in God have always traditionally meant by saying God is simple. When a believer says God is simple, what we mean is, well, things in this world are compl 
complex. They're made up of bits. You stick the bits together and you get an object. Okay. God is not made up of bits. There are not bits of God that you stick together and get God. Uh, God is um, unitary, like a unitary consciousness, like your consciousness now. It's, it's not made of little bits of consciousness stuck into one. Uh, it's essentially uh, one, right, unified. And in that sense, God is a unified being, not complex. That's what a theologian means by saying God is not complex. He chides uh, you, in particular, in the God delusion, I've got, for not yeah. knowing what... Uh, it means to to say something is simple. Yes. Uh, if you had a right of reply, what would you say? I have to, I, I've written a reply, and, and uh, which you won't read, I don't suppose. But uh, well, simplicity and complexity are difficult terms, and you have to spell out simple in what respect, with regard to what, and complex in what respect. God is complex in some ways. God is complex because God knows everything, and that's that's a lot of things to know. So you can see that's complex. But then there's only one consciousness, one mind, one knowledge of God. So that's simple compared to human beings who have uh, lots of different things in their minds. So you have to spell out the meanings of simple and complex. And I have to say it is he who hasn't read the philosophical literature. Um, there are lots of lovely articles in philosophy. One of them is called The Complexity of Simplicity. Um, I mean, reading that would be quite good. <laughs>
Uh, I find them all compelling, really, but I think they do need to be restated. W what Aristotle was doing was to take the best science of his day, he was doing the best science of his day, and show what sort of world they suggested, what was the basis of the world. So what we need to do is look at the best science of our day, and I think that is physics, and particularly cosmology and quantum physics, which Dawkins doesn't talk much about, and look at those and say, what view of the world do they suggest? And I really believe, having talked, uh, luckily, to some of the best quantum physicists in the world, who live here in Oxford, <laughs> not all of them, but some of them, and, uh, and they would say, seriously, uh, that um, quantum physics does point to a world much stranger than a simple-minded materialist might think. Uh, and possibly suggestive of some sort of mind or intelligence. Uh, I think that's on the agenda for science. So what the arguments for God is, are doing, they're not saying, I can prove as a God, if you don't think that you're wrong. They're saying, look, if you look at the world dispassionately, from the best science there is, it's suggestive of a mind-like intelligence. It's a suggestion, it's not a compulsion, uh, but it, it also helps you to get an idea of God. I mean, if you ask me what are, what are the traditional proofs of God doing, they're defining God rather than proving God. They're saying if there was uh, an ultimate uh, personal explanation of the universe, it would be a bit like this. Yeah. One of the arguments uh, I've read of yours is, is the argument from the surplus, uh, the surplus nature of intelligence, the human intelligence. We have uh, far more intelligence than we need simply to survive. Could you unpack that for me, the argument from the uh, surplus intelligence? Well, it's an argument from uh, just the existence of consciousness. I mean, if you're just saying that uh, things evolve, become adaptive in human life because they help you to survive, consciousness isn't actually necessary for that. I mean, there's no reason why you should be aware of something. Uh, ants, which I take it aren't aware, I hope I don't offend anybody by saying that. Ants aren't conscious, but they survive all right, and they, they respond to stimuli. You can do this uh, I'm told you can even drive a car without being conscious. Uh, so, uh, there is a question, why consciousness? Why, why that sensitivity? Why that feeling, that appreciation of beauty? And that intelligence where you work things out, you do higher mathematics, you, you try to understand the laws of the universe. Uh, that doesn't seem to be an evolutionary uh, adaptation. Uh, that would, uh, it's very hard to, I'm, I'm not saying it must have been God, I'm just saying it's difficult to see this uh, as required for survival. One of the uh, other things you've uh, insisted upon, with many others, is that there's no tension between full-blown evolutionary theory and belief in a creator God. Could you explain why there is no tension? Well, I think creation, the Christian doctrine of creation, is that the whole of space and time, whatever it's like and however long it takes, depends on one uh, perfect, uh, beautiful, intelligent God. <laughs> on a, a reality beyond space and time. So it, it's not really about how things began or how they got here. That's the detail. It's just about the dependence of, the, of everything on God. Well, obviously you can believe in creation whether or not evolution happened. It's irrelevant. I mean, if, if evolution happened, if things got more complicated from being more simple, you say, well, yeah, but the whole process depends on God anyway. So I don't even see a tension between the two. If there are multiple millions of universes, then the chances of intelligent life emerging in one of them 
presumably increases, uh, <laughs> so some of the atheists are saying. Therefore, we don't need any God. We, we just posit multiple universes instead. Yeah. I like that argument. I think it's very good. Um, St. Augustine thought of it first. <laughs> but he didn't have the bit about we don't need God. He just said probably God would create a number of universes. Uh, so it's not a, a, again, it's not as new a thought as people might think. I think it's a very interesting theory. Um, but if you compare two possibilities, one, you've got millions and millions of universes, all, all of them different and uh, all of them containing every possible sort of thing. I don't know who arranges that, you know, but just suppose you have all those millions of universes compared with one God who creates one universe because God chooses to do so. And you say, um, which is the simpler theory? Which is the more elegant theory? Which is the more plausible theory? I think it's God every time, you know. 20 billion universes, all at random, spawned from nothing, or God who chooses a universe because it is good. I think the God hypothesis is really a very compelling one. Even Richard Dawkins acknowledges the possibility of deism. Uh, in a throwaway line, he says, we can all trivially accept Einstein's impersonal mind behind the universe. Well, if I can put it like this. I think that's putting it the wrong way around. I think that in fact religion uh, is based on personal apprehension of a spiritual reality of great beauty. Uh, and that's where religion starts. And where all these arguments go wrong is in thinking God is just a theory about to explain the universe. That's not true. I mean, anybody who's got a serious belief in God I would claim that they, or somebody they know, or somebody at least they've heard of, has had a real personal experience of a spiritual reality. So that's where it starts. Then the question is, does the world as science looks at it fit with my apprehension of God or, or do I just have to put my apprehension as a delusion, you know, it doesn't fit at all? That's the question. Uh, and I think when you're looking at science uh, and the scientific view of the world, you have to ask, well, how does that affect my picture of the, this being that I take myself to have a personal apprehension of? So, uh, and that's where I think science comes in and says, actually, there's a very good um, uh, explanation of the universe in terms of such a personal reality. But you're not starting there, you, you know, so deism is not the starting point. Uh, you might be forced into deism, I wouldn't feel forced into deism, uh, by having difficulties about where is God at work or something. Uh, but the fact is, uh, most of us who believe in God start from personal experience. Uh, and that's not deistic because it's an interactive and, and very personal relationship. The question is, do, is it reasonable in the scientific worldview? That's the question. Sociological arguments against religion also feature prominently in recent works. Isn't it true that religion causes a lot of the war and bloodshed through history? Well, uh, I suppose people with religious beliefs have caused uh, war and bloodshed, but it would be ridiculously wrong to say that most of the wars in history have been produced by religion. It's just absolutely demonstrably false. Um, the worst wars in history so far were in the first half of the 20th century, First and Second World Wars, they had nothing at all to do with religion. Uh, and if you look at any of the MI5 or uh, intelligence reports on the causes of terrorism and war, they always mention economic deprivation, sense of injustice, the desire for power, uh, and the desire for territory, 
and sheer, I'm afraid, hatred. Um, religion has always been aware of these forces, and religions have always been aware that you can't uh, pretend not to have some <laughs> element of those human vices in the religious institution. It, it's got to happen. For all sinners, some of us are in the church, okay? So, so we're not going to be perfect. But you just have to look at history. So the Roman Empire, what was the religion they were trying to propagate? Ah, difficult to say. What about the Huns? I mean, what, um, okay, the, the Ottoman Empire became Muslim, but it didn't start that way. It started off just as a, an empire. Even the British Empire, glorious, oh, I'm sure it is, uh, wasn't a religious crusade. I mean, it was, they were after money, East India Company, etc. So the driving forces of human violence are greed, hatred, and desire for power. If that gets into religion, well, religion gets corrupted. But I've always seen religion as something which has to moderate those forces and actually say they're, they're wrong. Um, Christopher Hitchens, one of the other great uh, new atheists, his whole book is about how religion poisons everything. and uh, It's just page after page of the Crusades, the Inquisition, uh, witch hunts, uh, support of slavery. Uh, the church does have a lot to answer for, doesn't it? Well, it has a lot to be proud of as well. You mentioned slavery. I mean, Christians like Wilberforce were among those who uh, campaigned against vicious opposition uh, against slavery. Um, the church was one of the first organizations in the world to be opposed to infanticide, the leaving out to die of young babies. The church founded hospitals and orphanages uh, and universities and colleges. I mean, the church has been a tremendous force for good. So, I mean, you can say, yeah, uh, things uh, do, of course, go wrong. But if I was going to think of uh, an ideology which has caused more torture and death and genocide than any other, I think I'd look at Christopher Hitchens' own ideology, namely Marxist communism, and I'd say that's what's caused most of the trouble in the world and has exterminated uh, millions of people ruthlessly. Uh, and when he says uh, atheists wouldn't do this sort of thing, he only has to read Bakunin, who is... Uh, a communist writer in Russia, he was, he's dead now, who said we must eliminate religious people because they are socially reactionary. And when he said eliminate, that's what he meant. I hope uh, the new atheists don't get what they want, the elimination of religious believers. Atheism has begun to claim the high moral ground, which is a bit of a turnaround. Uh, they say religion corrupts, inhibits, whereas humanistic values liberate and affirm. Um, is that compelling, do you think? I think humanistic values do liberate and affirm, and of course humanism is a Christian uh, way of thinking. Uh, it doesn't mean anti-religion. Uh, Erasmus, the great uh, Catholic thinker, was a humanist, and humanism in its origins in Europe uh, was a movement for uh, seeking the fulfillment of the human. And for goodness sake, if God creates humans, doesn't God create humans to be fulfilled? <laughs> yes, for humans to flourish and for human values like truth and the pursuit of beauty, the pursuit of knowledge, for those things to flourish. If that's humanism, then of course it's a Christian virtue. So nothing wrong with that. Um, when it turns into hatred of religion or hatred of anything, there's something wrong with that. Because the big thing in our culture now is not that humanism has won and religion has finished, it's that humanism has been finished off by something much more dangerous, which is the view that humans are not important. 
uh, and that human values aren't important and that there aren't any values there at all. And uh, that's a much more dangerous view. And that's the totally atheistic view. Humanism is dead. You've said that a morality which depends on religious belief is more reasonable than a morality that doesn't. How so? Well, because I think that uh, when somebody, take, suppose you believe in God, and you, be, and you believe that God is good, you, you're not thinking about this God who goes around zapping people all the time, right? You think that uh, there's a good God who wants uh, you to achieve happiness and flourishing, but also wants you to serve others, to help to make them happy and flourish. Uh, so you think there is an objective demand upon you to work for the good of the world. And it's not, you're not just making that up. That, that is God demanding you to do that. Uh, and that talk about God's commands is it, not tyrannical. It's just God saying, look, I've created the world for good. Can't you help to do your part in making it uh, uh, what it should be in, in the words of the old Genesis story, you know, care for the garden. It's, it's your job to cultivate things and care for the world. So that's an objective impulsion. And of course, if you love God, you do that because you love God. You won't do it because you fear and hate God. You do it because you want to do what God wants. That's so a very strong motivation. Now, um, when I was an atheist and I asked myself the question, what is morality based on? I had to say, we just make it up. That's what it's based on. Uh, and it then occurred to me, it's one reason I became a Christian, I think, that if I could just make it up, why shouldn't I make it up in my favour? Makes much more sense. So I think, uh, for me, the objective demand of God and of religion, uh, I just felt it is right. I mean, there is that demand. I can't just make it up. So, uh, for me, I think a religious morality is very important. You've alluded to a move from atheism to Christian belief. Can, can I ask you briefly what, you know, what moved you toward that, the, the narrative of that? Well, lots of things would be the answer, but let me select two important ones for me. One was that, that I was taught philosophy which was not religious. It wasn't anti-religious, but it wasn't, didn't take religion into account. Uh, and I just came to feel, as a philosopher, that it was, it was a rather weak philosophy that didn't explore things uh, as deeply as one might. For example, one of my teachers was Freddie Eyre, who logical positivist. Well, without going into details, the trouble with that was it was all wrong. You know, the philosophy was just wrong. In the same way, I think materialism is a very shallow uh, philosophy. Um, and so one was a philosophical thing. I just uh, didn't think. I, I looked at the history of philosophy. Most great philosophers, almost all, have, be have thought uh, that there are very good reasons for thinking there is a God. Um, and I became gradually convinced that most great philosophers had been right. <laughs> and, um, but the other thing was I was actually converted, so there you are. And uh, um, uh, I did have an experience of Christ uh, coming into my life as a, a personal and fulfilling and liberating presence. Uh, so it was always good. <laughs> None of this bad stuff about repressing me somehow. Uh, and that was important. So uh, the two halves went together for me. Can we return, uh, finally, to the new atheism? Is the new atheism having an influence on academic philosophy? I think that most professional philosophers would be embarrassed by the new atheism because it's so bad. <laughs> uh, it doesn't know 
much about the history of philosophy, it doesn't tackle arguments seriously, and the book The God Delusion is a prime example of this. It doesn't take the arguments seriously, it relies on mockery, on rhetoric, on, on uh, um, just uh, words that belittle people who hold different views from your own. It's everything a good philosopher is against. So I think philosophers, I've asked a lot of my colleagues in philosophy um, who teach professionally, why don't you write uh, a philosophical response to this stuff? And they say it's not worth it. Well, I've taken the challenge on and, and tried to do it. But, uh, so, that, so it's not influential in the strictly academic world. So the second part of the question is, um, do you think what we're witnessing is the, the final scream of a dying breed? Or do you actually think we're seeing a renaissance of unbelief, of deep dogmatic scepticism? <clears throat> I'm not a sociologist, and I find it difficult to answer that question. But I, I, in, certainly in the society in which I was brought up, after the two world wars in Europe, I think there was a, a definite uh, rejection of institutionalized religion. Not because religion had caused the wars, it was nothing like that. It was just the thought, so many people dead and such a useless conflict. I just generally thought the whole thing seems to be a pointless mess. You know, I think. Uh, and then there was, uh, in Britain anyway, take, take uh, England in particular, um, a feeling of guilt about the empire. You know, the, this has been a great empire, we're all proud of it, the flags flew in the churches. You don't see that very much now, and people don't know how to take that. And so there's a loss of social confidence, uh, and of course the Christian religion is bound up with that because that was part of the establishment. So a large anti-establishment feeling. And then for other reasons, the non-conformist churches in England have collapsed. Uh, I find that very, very sad indeed, but they're just not appealing to people anymore. So uh, it's a social mood. It's got nothing to do really with intellectual arguments, this. Um, it's a condition of our culture where Big Brother on television is uh, the thing that attracts people. And that's rude, um, sexually explicit, uh, uh, invites people to express things without any uh, reserve. You know. And if you compare that with singing hymns in church on a Sunday, you see there's a mismatch, there's a cultural mismatch. Um, so what will happen next? I have no idea. Um, but Are you I, saying uh, the new atheism is the big brother of philosophy? Yes, I think it is. I think it is exactly. Uh, uh, and it works. It's a celebrity culture. Uh, and so you don't worry about the arguments. The worse they are, the better, because they're fun, you know. Uh, but it's the people, it's the names, you know. And, uh, and they're famous because they're famous, and that's why they're famous. I think that's what it is. And I put this question, you see, there's some very good philosophers in Britain, very good philosophers. I challenge anybody who's watching this to name one of them. And I don't believe anybody could do it. Uh, and that is a measure of the gulf between what happens in academic circles and what people think <laughs> is good argument. Uh, it's true in physics too, actually. I mean, I know people could name one or two physicists. But if you ask them, well, just tell me who most physicists would regard as the top physicist, they wouldn't know the name. Now, I'm not trying to be arrogant about it. I'm just saying there's a huge gulf between how the media presents things and who are taken to be experts on this, that, or the other, and what, in, in the subjects themselves, you think these are the cutting-edge uh, disciplines, or these are the people who are at the cutting-edge. Uh, and that's another s cultural sign of... of uh, 
a sort of, I don't know, um, where celebrity becomes more important than truth. And rhetoric is more important than truth. So what will happen, I don't know. But I think you only have to say, well, I'll try and make truth a bit more important. The great irony is that people like Dawkins say they are reasonable and truthful. Read the books, read The God Delusion. There have been few more irrational books than that which are written in a tone of vitriolic rhetoric, not reason. And a mark of reason is you take your opponent's arguments seriously. You consider them, you look at all sides of the question, and you come to a balanced uh, uh, conclusion. Uh, you won't see that in these apostles of reason. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Well, that's um, it's sort of a complicated argument, but the basic idea is if you are a naturalist, um, you'll also be a materialist about human beings. You'll think human beings are material objects, that there isn't any immaterial soul or self or person or ego. And uh, you'll think that a belief is something like um, a structure of neurons in your nervous system or in the brain and the like, which will have two kinds of properties. The belief will have neurophysiological properties, and in virtue of having those, it can cause behavior of various kinds. And, uh, but the belief will also have a content property. It'll be the belief that P for some proposition P. Well, now, what evolution is interested in is um, adaptive behavior. It doesn't, as such, give a, give a hoot about what you believe. I mean, all it cares about, it rewards adaptive behavior and punishes maladaptive behavior. So evolution will modify those neurophysiological properties in the direction of greater adaptiveness so that they'll cause adaptive action more frequently, let's say. But it doesn't follow that it in any way modifies belief in the, in the direction of, uh, of, tru of truth. Evolution doesn't care about true belief. Um, imagine a frog sitting on a lily pond. Its tongue flicks out, it captures a fly. And there have to be various indicators in the frog indicating just how far away the, the, the fly is, what its velocity is, and the like of that. And these have to cause the right action, namely the tongue flipping, flicking out and capturing the fly. Maybe the frog's got beliefs too, but it doesn't matter what they are. They're just as likely to be false as to be true. The same, I would say, goes more generally. If you accept uh, naturalism and materialism, that combination, then it seems to me you're going to have to, con uh, you'll have to take it that for any particular belief, the probability that it's true is about a half. It's, it could as likely be true as false. All you really know is that um, the creatures in question have, have evolved so that they um, act adaptively. They act, behave adaptively. But it doesn't matter what the, what the beliefs, what beliefs they've got are. And if that's the case, then the probability that one's beliefs are reliable will be low. Given naturalism and evolution, that probability is low. So there's a sense of not <clears throat> being able to trust your own cognitive uh, yeah, thoughts. your own cognitive faculties, right? But, but why? Some might say, well, you know, why should I trust my cognitive faculties that point me towards belief as well? Well, what I say is, if you uh, don't believe in God, or if you are a naturalist and you also accept evolution then you've got a reason not to think your faculties are reliable. Um, if, you, if, you, if you're not like that, if you just, like everybody, just take it for granted that your faculties are reliable, that seems to me perfectly sensible. But if you combine that with thinking, uh, accepting naturalism and evolution, then that combination isn't sensible. That's the thought. Also take issue with Richard Dawkins' argument that God would have to be infinitely complex and therefore is highly unlikely. Dawkins himself defines complex like this. He says a thing is complex if it has lots and lots of parts that are put together in a way that's unlikely just by chance. But of course God um, isn't a being that's got parts. God is supposed to be a spirit. 
God doesn't have any parts. So it follows from Dawkins' own definition that God couldn't be complex. So, I mean, uh, it seems to me he's really sort of uh, fallen off the boat at that point. You also say that Richard Dawkins' argument is not only weak in argument, but it is unlovely and dispiriting in its conception of human nature. What does Christianity have to offer in this way that's different? Well, according to, um, according to the Dawkinsian way of looking at the world, human beings are just another animal with a peculiar way of making a living. According to the Christian way of looking at human beings, human beings are um, created in God's image. And they are created for fellowship with God, for fellowship with the first being of the universe. It's, um, it's an almost over-the-top thought, but that's part of Christian belief. So the, the basic difference with respect to what people are like between these two could not be more stark. There's an enormous difference there. It's an important one for people to, to understand, perhaps, uh, as they assess the implications of different systems of belief, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, for example, uh, most people take morality really seriously. This, of course, fits in extremely well with Christian belief or any kind of theistic belief, Judaist, uh, Judaism or Islam, too. But it doesn't fit with naturalism. I mean, where does this sort of moral requirement, where could that come from if naturalism, Dawkinsian naturalism, were true? Do you find the fine-tuning argument a compelling one, the fine-tuning argument for God's existence? Um, these arguments, the problem with these arguments is uh, they get very complicated. And I'm inclined to think there's something to the fine-tuning argument, but there are responses to it too, you know. I mean, so the idea is, <clears throat> well, the cosmological constants like the speed of light, the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force and so on, that be very finely tuned in order for life of our sort to be possible. And they are. And it looks like that's more likely given theism. God would want, uh, would, in creating the world, would create it in such a way, of course, that he could have human beings. Then on, then on chance. Uh, and I guess I'm inclined to think that's, that's correct. Uh, but then there are various responses. For example, maybe there just are uh, an enormous number of universes, all with, with a constant tuned in all different ways, you know, so that every possible combination shows up somewhere. Well, then there certainly would be one like this, and uh, doesn't that blunt the argument? Hard to prove that one, of course. It's very hard to prove it, but it's just a, it's a maybe, you know. As a response to the fine-tuning argument, the person says, maybe, maybe that. Well, I don't quite know what to make of that. I don't think it's a very strong response. But um, even, if it, even if the fine-tuning argument is of some strength, it's not strong enough to support the kind of uh, belief that Christians actually have in God. I mean, that's much, much more, um, not just, it's more likely than not that there is such a person, but there really is. And it involves more like a personal sort of relationship than just a result of an argument. There's a richness to it. Yeah. That goes beyond those sorts of arguments. Right, right. Professor Alvin Plantinger. You have talked a lot about proven faith versus reliable or warranted faith. What did you mean by that? Some people think that in order to be 
warranted in believing in God, you've got to be able to prove God's existence. You've got to have an argument. You know, maybe the fine-tuning argument or the ontological argument or some of the, one of the, there's a whole bunch of arguments. I've got a paper called um, Two Dozen or So Good Theistic Arguments. So the idea is, if you're going to believe in God rationally or reasonably or with warrant, you have to have a good argument like that. But you might also think, on the other hand, you might say, well, why is that true? You don't have to have a good argument to believe, as I was saying earlier on, rationally believe that there are other people. I mean, that seems utterly obvious to us, but there's no decent argument for there being other people or for there having been a past. Bertrand Russell once said, the whole world could have popped into existence just five minutes ago, complete with all the, <clears throat> all the appearances of great age, like crumbling mountains and wrinkled faces and... Uh, rusty cars and it all could have popped into existence as far as I mean we don't have a proof that that didn't happen still it's nobody believes that and it's not that because they don't have a proof they're not being rational I would say the same thing goes with respect to belief in God what does it mean for me to base my life on something that is merely plausible well uh, uh, something's being merely plausible um, uh, maybe one can bet one's life on something like that and maybe in some cases you have to bet your life on something like that so if I'm descending this mountain and um, I'm not properly dressed then let's say this is Mount Rainier in Washington in the United States and it's a very high mountain it's a very snowy mountain I'm going down I come to this crevasse and I can't really tell what the landing, whether I can jump it. You know, maybe it just looks like it's a little too far for me to jump, or maybe, maybe I can just barely make it. But I've got to, I've got to do something. I don't. If I, if I don't try to jump it, I'll perish for sure. <clears throat> and if I do, I might not. So in that case, I have to go by plausibility, or even something that's fairly low, low probability. Now I don't know whether uh, Christian belief is like that. But for most Christians, it isn't just a matter of something's being plausible or fairly likely. It's more like it just seems right. It seems true. And uh, this sense of conviction can rise and fall. It can be greater at some times than at others. You might wake up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. and wonder, can this whole wonderful story actually be true? But at other times, it seems as um, solid as that to me is that I live in Indiana. So, I mean, it's not, for the most part, a matter of something that's uh, just probable or plausible. I wonder if you'd say, tell me, what is the place of historical evidence in faith? I'm, I'm thinking especially of the resurrection, which seems to me to be crucial to uh, Christian understanding. It certainly is. Um, there again, um, it's not obvious that you have to have a good historical argument. I mean... People like John Calvin, for example, and many others have, have spoken of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. It's as if he thinks um, God offers you uh, this chance to be right with him. And if you accept it, then you find yourself with this conviction that Jesus Christ really was the divine Son of God, really did suffer for our sins really did atone for our sins and enable us to once more be at one with God, to be in God's favor. But the arguments, the historical arguments people offer, um, these historical arguments can be a kind of uh, powerful addition or a powerful kind of corroboration or something that, um, that 
that strengthens one's whole belief in this context. Speaking with Professor Alvin Plantinger, is the God of the Old Testament a moral monster? Well, I think that's um, a lot. The things there, there are things that go on in the Old Testament that are sort of that do seem to affront current moral sensibilities, and that's the topic of this uh, conference that's going to start uh, start tomorrow. Um, um, but it seems to me it's a, there's no reason at all to think that the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster. God commands the Israelites on certain occasions to, uh, uh, looks like he commands the Israelites to kill all the Amalekites or to kill all the so-and-sos, including even the cattle and so on. Right, that's a deeply troubling uh, yeah. text, for even for believers, right? Yes, it is troubling. And um, I don't know what, don't frankly don't quite know what to make of that. Um, it seems to me what, what a Christian does, though, is think like this. A Christian um, knows this about God, that um, God himself is, was willing to undergo the suffering and so on involved in Christ's suffering and death. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, suffers the bitterly cruel and shameful death of the cross, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it willing to do that for human beings who have turned their backs on him and have rejected him. This means that God is a God of supreme love and goodness. So whatever actually is the right, is the truth about those Old Testament passages, I mean, maybe we just don't properly understand them. I mean, there are many parts of scripture that we don't properly understand, or maybe we do and maybe God did command these things. Whatever is the truth about those Old Testament passages, um, Christians at least know that since they know God as a God of love and a God of goodness, what he did was right, whatever it was. What things are most problematic for you as a believer? I think the, the, hardest, the hardest part of uh, being a believer, um, uh, well, maybe two things. One thing is that as most believers encounter for stretches of their lives, substantial stretches, God doesn't seem close or present, or maybe only very occasionally. That's, that's a hard thing, and that's, Christians have noted this going all the way back. Some, some speak of the dark night of the soul in this connection, and the same, in fact, seemed to have been true for Mother Teresa, according to the, this right. recent book. Um, that's one thing. Um, and the other is the, well, it's the suffering and evil that the world contains, warfare and, um, all the, every day you read the paper, another terrible thing happens. Some little girl gets kidnapped and raped. or I mean, it's just one thing after another, and it's been one thing after another for as long as, there is, as, long as, we, as, long as we know. I mean, hu human history is a history of suffering and pain and uh, often wickedness. Well, why does God permit that? That's not so clear. That's a, that's a difficult question. Christianity does have this resource uh, along those lines, namely that um, God himself is willing to enter into the, 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 uh, the suffering and uh, pain that 
goes on in our world. The second person of the Trinity suffers uh, this, the death on the cross. The first person suffers um, his sons being humiliated and crucified and suffering in that fashion. So we may not know why God permits all this evil, but at least he's not sort of aloof and standing above it all and making us suffer for his wonderful ends, and even we don't have any idea really what they are. At least we know this, he himself is willing to get involved in our suffering. I wonder as you look back over your life, what is it about Christianity that has sustained you? you talked about the fact that sometimes Christians experience long periods where they feel perhaps distance from God, but have you felt the, the presence of God in your own life? Uh, yeah, yes I have, yeah. Not as often as I would like to have, um, and at different periods of my life to different degrees, but I, I have often. Um, for example, one time uh, many years ago when I was a young man and um, in love with mountains and mountaineering, I went, I couldn't get anybody else to go with me yet because it was, uh, the weather was terrible and I went uh, hiking alone off trail in the North Cascades, which are extremely rugged mountains in, in uh, western Washington in the U.S. And um, it started raining and then the rain changed to snow and then I got lost. A fog rolled in. I couldn't, couldn't see the peaks, so I couldn't uh, navigate by the peaks. My map turned to mush. I mean, I hadn't got it in a proper map, map case because I'd just gotten out to the mountains. And so I, I, got, I was really lost. I was out overnight, and uh, I was in an area where the statistics on people who were lost alone were not at all encouraging. And I, and I felt God's presence just palpably. I didn't know what his plans were for me, and I wasn't sure I liked what I thought his plans might be, but his presence was, uh, was just um, sort of, you could feel it. This has happened to me on, on more than one occasion, this sort of thing. And one final question. What longings of the human heart does Jesus most answer? Well, I think well, one longing that we human beings actually do have and it manifests itself in different ways in different people, is something like a, a desire for God, a desire for connection with God, a desire for, uh, for knowing God. I mean, the Psalms are full of this, but, but people all over the world, uh, people that have never heard anything about Christianity or even really about theism, display a similar kind of uh, a longing, a wanting to be, to be at one with God or, or to fit with God. Maybe you'll think, maybe you'll think of this in various ways, but that is, um, that's a deep human longing and of course that's what's offered by Christian belief, by Christianity. If you accept Jesus as your Savior, then you are once more um, right with God and can and, and then there's, in a certain respect, there's nothing that can go wrong. I mean, you can get shot, you can fall off a mountain, you can run over by a truck, but there's nothing that can go ultimately wrong. I mean, you are, um, you are then, in a way you might say, safe, utterly safe. Well, Alvin Planting, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Okay.